Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show, Episode 2. We're here. Everybody's uh, coming in live on YouTube. We'll be live other places very soon. Many of you are listening on podcast apps. You can now download the podcast everywhere. Uh, it is now available uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, whether you listen on Spotify or another app, uh, you can listen to the show. It is a podcasting uh, 2.0 type broadcast. Uh, that means you can find it on Podcasting 2.0 apps. It makes it harder for us to be censored. I have had podcasts in the past uh, which have been censored by the likes of Apple, removed from their index. They used to have the only index in podcasting. This is a Podcasting 2.0 show. This is a Podcasting 2.0 program. But diving right into the show, because we really do have a lot of news to cover today, more than I even uh, expected, we have out first here uh, a story about... President Trump, what's going on with these documents uh, that have now come out, the documents that have been revealed? Uh, we're going to talk about that up first. We're going to get into John Podesta. He is now back in the White House. They released that as a late Friday news dump so that it would get minimal coverage. I'm going to give you a perspective on John Podesta's re-entry to the White House that you're not going to hear anywhere else. But uh, this is just in from the Wall Street Journal, a federal judge in Florida temporarily blocked the government from using materials seized from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property for a criminal investigation while a special master reviews the documents. Here's a report out of the Wall Street Journal. It says, however, the Labor Day order permitted intelligence officials to continue their examination of potential damage to national security. The former president may have also caused by taking highly sensitive documents to his private club. A spoiler alert, uh, he did not damage national security. I have been right down the middle on this issue. When it comes to these documents, I have called balls. I've called strikes. I think I've played it very fair on this story. I have given you the facts. And I will say that national security has not been damaged by this. This is uh, Donald Trump collecting memorabilia, is what it is. And the media has gone to great lengths to tell you that these are extremely damaging secrets. First, they told us that they were nuclear secrets. I don't know what nuclear secret exactly there is to protect. Everyone knows what kind of nukes we have. Everyone knows basically how they work. Uh, the contractors, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense, all of the players that manage America's nuclear arsenal are utterly infiltrated by the Chinese, by the Iranians, by the Russians. Some would say by the Israelis. So these institutions are completely penetrated by foreign intelligence uh, agencies as it is. And then they were forced to say, well, no, it wasn't actually nuclear secrets. It was letters with Kim Jong-un in which they mentioned nuclear weapons because that's what the whole relationship and negotiation was about. So they moved the goalposts on that, the media and the FBI and the leakers have in Washington, D.C., Moving the goalpost is kind of par for the course with all of this stuff. It is what they do. Uh, it is just what they do, and, and we've gotten used to it. We remember for years they were saying the walls are closing in on Donald Trump. Any week now, Mueller will indict him for colluding with the Russians. The walls are closing in. He's a Russian spy. You can watch these 10-minute mixes these 10-minute compilations of people in the media saying the walls are closing in on Trump, this is no different. This is yet another Trump legal drama. The left wing eats up these stories. The right wing eats them up as well. They mean big ratings. 
Uh, people launch their careers based on these stories. U.S. attorneys, junior attorneys within the government who you've never heard of, launch their careers in private practice. They get their names out there in the media. They become uh, guest speakers at universities. They are offered uh, visiting professorships. These people uh, get a lot out of this. If you go right now and you look at what is Andrew Weissman up to, what is Ginny Ray up to, what are all these people doing these days that were involved in the Mueller witch hunt? They have all launched incredibly lucrative careers. Many of them now are full-time contributors for CNN, for MSNBC. I think about Andrew McCabe. So there's a lot in this for the left. Even if they find nothing, even if Donald Trump doesn't do one day in jail, even if he doesn't pay $1 in fines, the left has an ecosystem in which they make their careers on these kind of BS cases. They make their careers on them. doesn't matter if the president's never indicted. doesn't matter if they never prove their allegation. It doesn't matter if things are thrown out. That corrupt FBI, a special agent in charge in Michigan that ran that whole sting, that fake sort of entrapment operation where they claimed that people were trying to kidnap the government or the governor only after the FBI begged them to do it over and over again. Remember that? Well, that guy now works in Washington, D.C. He's been promoted. That's the goal of all of these people. They all want to make it to Washington. They all want to become figures in Washington. Some of them do, some of them don't. When the Michigan AG came after me, which was within the same 30 days as running this nonsense entrapment scheme, she was hoping that she would launch her career into Washington, D.C., that she would become a D.C. player. She got spots on Rachel Maddow. She became a regular on Maddow on MSNBC. Now, she didn't quite have the stuff to make it to D.C., unfortunately for her. But her underling uh, in the investigation did. He now works at the FCC, which also came after us for $5.2 million. They've now given up on that and gone away. Thank God. So this is what these people do. They make careers out of these nonsense cases. Now, the review by the intelligence community of these documents is taking place at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI. In fact, the ODNI's office is located right down the street from me. Very nondescript office. I mean, way more nondescript than CIA. CIA's got big signs. It says, pull in here to arrive at the CIA. George H.W. Bush National Center for Intelligence, pull on in. Uh, the ODNI just says, like, Tyson Spectrum Office Park. And then you can accidentally pull in to make a U-turn on, on this particular street, and you, uh, you're like, where, where am I? Is this a government installation? Oh, this is the ODNI. That's right. It's a Liberty Crossing Intelligence Campus. So that's why, that's where that's happening now. That's continuing at the ODNI. Now, they have uh, liaisons from FBI at the ODNI, so it's not as though one hand at the FBI isn't going to talk to the others. A special master will review the documents to determine uh, which are privileged, which are subject to presidential privilege, which are subject to personal privilege, which are subject to attorney-client privilege. The judge has now ruled on that. Media said it wouldn't happen. So that's the latest on the Trump document story. That is out uh, just now in the Wall Street Journal. We'll continue to cover it. Of course, last week, Biden made a lot of news. Republicans outraged when Biden appeared at a speech with red lights in the background, looking very Hitlerian, looking tyrannical. He has two Marine sentries uh, behind him, their hands clasped together. 
looking like they're ready to shoot anyone who has opposition, although there were people in the back with bullhorns uh, chanting, let's go, Brandon. The president had a lot to say about the right wing in this country, basically declaring the Make America Great Again coalition, the Make America Great Again contingent of the Republican Party to be uh, enemies of the state. That is what Joe Biden effectively said. Now, one thing that was clear in this speech is that Biden is hopped up on some kind of new drug. They had him on some new stack of performance-enhancing drugs. He was speaking very, very quickly, uh, more quickly than he usually does. And he was acting belligerent, aggressive. You see this from Biden a lot. Everybody pretends, oh, he's old, polite old Joe. No, he's not. He's never been that way. You remember on the campaign, he says, oh, you, you question me, you ain't black. He asks the black reporter, what are you smoking crack, man? You're a crackhead, aren't you? Walks up to the girl, tells her she's a lying dog-faced pony soldier, calls the Iowa voter fat, tries to fight him, tells the guy who wants his AR-15 that he's uh, quote-unquote full of shit. Uh, that is Joe Biden. Joe Biden's always been a belligerent SOB. People in Washington who know Joe Biden, with the exception of Lindsey Graham, who seems to really, really like him, will tell you that he's a belligerent guy. He's an aggressive guy. He's rude. Uh, that's just how he is. He's a rude, arrogant guy. And he's basically only ever worked in politics. So he, he hasn't had a real job. His entire background when he ran for president in 1998 was, or 1988 was revealed to be uh, completely fraudulent. His claims about graduating at the top of his law school class, a full scholarship, etc. He graduated near the bottom of his law school class. He graduated near the bottom of his law school class. But you know what they say, if you graduate at the bottom of your medical class, you know what they call you? Doctor. And you know what they call you in, in, in the law? They call you uh, a lawyer. That's, you know, it's, it isn't one of these things that gets you very far beyond your first hire, beyond your first job. So this is a guy who hasn't really had a job. Now, what I will say is that the Republican instincts on this, among the punditry out there, I think are by and large wrong. They're wrong. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, Biden had, he had red lights. He looks like a tyrant. He should, he should come out and, uh, and look like uh, Rob Smith and Charlie Kirk and Benny Johnson. He should, he should run out to rainbow lights playing Lady Gaga, doing a buffoonish dance up on stage, doing the worm on the stage like Benny Johnson. That's what he should do. This is too threatening. He should act like Turning Points USA, have pink lights and rainbows and uh, dance out there like he's on his way to a gay pride parade. That's what Biden should do. That's what everyone in politics should do. No, Republicans should be asking themselves, how can they look even stronger? Do we have lights in an even darker red? Can we put more Marine sentries? Should we have them armed? How do we appear even stronger than Biden? Now, I, I understand why the optics of Biden's speech, along with what he is threatening to do, what he is saying about one part of the country is extremely disturbing. And it isn't a matter, I mean, some people forget, it isn't a matter of mobilizing the infantry against the American people. He's been using this line a lot lately. I don't know if you've noticed in his speeches, Joe Biden has, where he says, you're going to need a lot more than an AR-15, man. Well, you're going to need an F-15. Uh, come on, man. You can't fight the government. And it's like, well, 
you tell that to the Taliban because they had rickety old AK-47s. They had a couple of RPGs. They had goats for milk and for company, apparently, or so they say. And yet they were able to utterly dominate the American forces. They fled into the hills. They played the hit-and-run guerrilla warfare game. And 20 years later, when they sensed weakness, when they sensed that Joe Biden was weak, they swept through the country in two weeks flat. They took down the army that we had put $82 billion into. You remember with Afghanistan, there's a lot of talk about foreign aid to Israel uh, and, and, and among the BDS people, among the uh, groipers out there. They talk about foreign aid to Israel. Fine, that's a discussion. I, I think probably we should end foreign aid to Israel. I think it would probably make Israel tougher in the Middle East, if anything, to not have our money flowing in and us keeping them on a leash in the form of money. They have plenty of money. It's a, it's a rich country, really. But you think about that, and you think about what we gave now to the Afghan National Army, which ultimately ended up in the hands of the Taliban within a matter of weeks. And it turns out that we gave to the Afghan National Army more military aid than we have given to Israel in its entire history. In fact, more than the total aid we've given to Israel in the entire history of the state of Israel. Just in the last 20 years, we armed the Taliban in one fell swoop with more equipment, training, night vision, artillery. In fact, items that we won't sell to Israel, items that are restricted for export under ITAR. If you shipped them as a private party to your friend in Israel, you would be charged with a crime if you were caught. It's unbelievable, uh, but it does show you that, in fact, you're not going to need an, an F-15. You're not going to need an F-15. So Biden's using this very extreme language, and it, and it isn't—that is all to say that it's not the army that's going to come after you. It's the language like this that Biden's using, which mobilizes and will be used to mobilize the army of thugs that, that will be unleashed at a time and place of the Democrat Party's choosing. I'm talking about Antifa. I'm talking about BLM. All it will take is, is one viral video. I mean, you understand this. There are arrests that take place in which, from a certain angle, uh, from a certain point of view, with a certain kind of editing, with a certain kind of eyewitness account. For example, the star witness in the Derek Chauvin trial, he was just busted for a, a brutally violent assault, borderline attempted murder. He says he's innocent and he's got PTSD from the George, George Floyd situation. Okay. That's what he says. But, but those groups will be mobilized at a, at a time and place of the Democrat Party's choosing. All they have to do is take one of those videos of one of those arrests that happens every day of the week. They have to feed it up the chain to the media. They have to surround it and encase it with a narrative. And at any day of the week, any time they choose, the Democrat Party, they can make one of these things go viral they can then use it to mobilize their thugs. I've seen it. I've watched it with my own eyes. I have walked up to these riots myself. And if they want to, they'll send them into the suburbs. They're very organized. These people are marched through town uh, like an army. In fact, they did terrorize some of the suburbs of Washington, D.C., within D.C. They didn't leave the state. They didn't go into Maryland or Virginia across the river. They wouldn't have been welcome in Virginia. Occasionally, they go into Maryland. Not often. 
They will do that, and it's this language that will mobilize these forces. And here's the deal. If you—I sound like Biden—here's the deal, Jack. Here's the deal. If you try to defend yourself against these riots, you will be charged. Many such cases— Many such cases all around the country. Somebody in earnest defends themselves against a BLM rioter, an Antifa rioter, and they are then criminally charged. Their lives, uh, I never like to say their lives destroyed because that makes it sound like they can never get their life back. And in most cases, they can. Look at Kyle Rittenhouse. I think he's doing better than ever. But their lives turned upside down at a minimum. Their lives turned upside down. So they're going to they're going to basically unleash their thugs on you using this kind of language from Joe Biden and you won't have the option to defend yourself. That is worth what they go for. That is the key of why they installed the Soros DAs all around the country. So that's what this is really about. Now there's an article out uh, just this week. Uh, this is uh, about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, here's a report from the Wall Street Journal. It says Russia to keep Nord Stream pipeline shut. This is the Nord Stream 1, rather, uh, citing mechanical problems. Uh, move comes hours after G7 countries agreed to price cap for Russian crude and raises pressure on Europe as governments race to avoid energy shortages this winter. That is the report out of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Russia says that the Nord Stream pipeline needs maintenance so they can't open it up. The uh, price of fuel is going up all around the world, especially throughout Europe. People getting $9,000 power bills where they used to be just a few hundred dollars. Uh, that is happening everywhere. So it is completely out of control. The price of energy is completely out of control. And you know what happens when they have this uh, price cap on Russian fuel? What happens is that China goes in. China then buys the Russian fuel, sells it back to them, and they call it Chinese fuel. So the price cap does nothing. In fact, they end up paying more because now they have to go through a middleman. The report says Kremlin-controlled energy company Gazprom, PG, PJSC, said it will fully suspend the key Nord Stream natural gas pipeline to Germany following maintenance, raising the pressure on Europe as governments race to avoid energy shortages this winter. But the Biden administration just doesn't seem to get this. They don't seem to understand that continuing this proxy conflict with Russia is not helping our allies. It's not helping the United States. It isn't even helping Ukraine, for that matter. It's not even, if you want to help Ukraine, that's one thing, but it's not even helping Ukraine. Ukrainians are dying. They're getting nothing out of this. Corrupt oligarchs are, are, are stealing most of this money. And we have a report out of Roll Call entitled, The White House $47 billion Supplemental Request Seeks COVID and Ukraine Funding. Emergency aid also sought for monkeypox and natural disasters. The goal is to attach to CR, which is a continuing resolution, a bill in the absence of a main budget bill. Now, you would think, given the spending bills that were just passed, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, or so it's called, the Chips Plus Act, and all of these spending bills, last three that were just passed, you would think that perhaps the government would be funded. But no, they're still passing continuing resolutions and they're requesting $47 billion more dollars. They just sent $53 billion to Ukraine, but it's not enough. The Biden administration is seeking tens of billions of dollars in emergency funds as part of an upcoming short-term spending bill lawmakers will take up this month, ranging from more military aid to Ukraine to heating and cooling assistance for low-income households. Administration. So, so they're already getting ready, you see here. Low-income households, that is here in the U.S., the United States government is already getting ready for people to freeze this winter. 
that is what they are preparing for. They would rather have the country freeze than to close down their money laundering exhibition that they've got going on through Ukraine. And they're preparing for that. Administration officials laid out new requests totaling $47.1 billion on Friday ahead of the long Labor Day weekend. Congress reconvenes next week, that would be this week now, uh, to start working on a stopgap funding legislation on which President Joe Biden's signature is required before October 1st in order to avert a partial government shutdown. Government shutdowns. I think that the government should remain shut down. And, you know, every time that there's a, a government shutdown, you ever notice when there's a government shutdown, they do reports explaining to you what a government shutdown is, the media does, and they tell you, they say, oh, no, this is just a situation where the non-essential employees don't go to work and they don't get paid. The essential employees keep going to work. Everything still runs. But I always ask, I say, well, then if they're non-essential, why do they ever go back? Why were they ever paid in the first place if they're non-essential? What exactly do they do while they're at work? I never get a straight answer to that. The largest individual piece of the White House proposal seeks $22.4 billion to cover the ongoing needs associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. $22.4 billion for the COVID-19 pandemic? For what? For what? Of course, what this really is, is it's a big handout to Big Pharma. This is a funding handout to Big Pharma. That's what this is. It's billions of dollars that are going to be handed out to Pfizer, that are going to be handed out to Moderna, that are going to be handed out to Abbott Labs, and all the other companies down the line that cashed in on the pandemic, on the lockdowns. $22.4 billion. This bill, this supplemental request, was written by lobbyists for these industries. That's how this works. You don't think that 19-year-old, 21-year-old, uh, 31-year-old congressional staffers all get together and write these bills that are 50,000 pages long, do you? No, they don't. The lobbyists write the bills. I've got three documents open on my other computer that are amendments and earmarks that we're writing up for clients in our lobbying firm that are going to go into pieces of legislation over the coming months. It's what we do. The lobbyists write the bills. The staffers pretend to read them. The congressmen vote on them in between fundraisers. And they don't even pretend to read them most of the time. That's how this game works. That's how Washington, D.C. actually works. And it's a, it's a unique perspective that you get on this show as the only uh, podcast that I'm aware of right now that is that, of this kind that is hosted by a registered lobbyists. I think there's a couple others where they do really wonky, uh, you know, kind of legislation review and it's aimed at like an audience of four people or something. This is the only major show like this hosted by a registered lobbyist in D.C., me. So that is the largest single piece. The Office of Management and Budget Director, uh, Shalonda Young, in a blog post uh, that uh, said in a blog post, why did they use blog posts? That additional funds are needed to restart a suspended program that sent free at-home testing kits to U.S. households and help prepare for a, percent, a potential fall surge of COVID-19 requests. So more testing kits from China that the U.S. Postal Service will send out eight weeks after people order them. And by the way, they, I, I think a certain percentage of them were recalled. 
because they had some toxin in them. That's what I, I, I believe I, I reported on a few, a few months back. So, so $10 billion. Unbelievable. Or $18.4 billion here would go to Health and Human Services, and $4 billion would support global efforts to contain and treat the pandemic. What does that even mean? You see, and here's how this actually works. You're going to learn something today on this podcast. You get a bill like this, and you will actually read the bill, and you'll say $4 billion to support global efforts to contain and treat the pandemic. Now, now those of you that, that don't work in government, or maybe even those of you who do, but certainly those of you who work in the private sector, uh, those of you who have ever raised money or written budgets or done any number of things, imagine you go to your boss and you say, uh, yeah, we're going to need to spend $4 billion. $4 billion. On what? Uh, we need to, quote, support efforts to contain and treat the pandemic. Or you said, support efforts to develop technology, to develop products. And you asked for $4 billion for a request that was that vague. Can you imagine such a thing in the private sector or even within, by the way, most municipal governments, if you were that vague? Yeah, just give me $4 billion. We're just going to support global efforts. That's all. So you might be saying to yourself, well, what actually happens to the money? And who really decides how that happens? Well, you see, there's a little something called the report language. And when lobbyists are writing things into bills, yes, sometimes they're actually written into the text of the bill. But oftentimes, where the, where the real dirty tricks happen, where the, where the sausage is really made, is in something called the report language. Now, think about the report language as the instruction manual that comes along with a, a complicated product that you buy. Okay, Imagine if you bought a... Uh, Build your own um, model rocket kit, let's just say. And you had a quick start guide. It's the one-sheeter, the quick start guide. Well, that's like the bill itself. That's like the law, the text of the law itself. But then you get into the booklet, the thick booklet, the, the instruction manual that really gets into the finer details. The report language is like the instruction manual. The report language, by the way, is something that does not have to be specifically voted on it just sort of whisks through with the bill. It is not reported on by the media. It's hard to even obtain if you're the general public most of the time. That's the report language. So what happens is, in the actual bill, they say we want $4 billion to support global efforts to contain and treat the pandemic. Then in the report language, you see, that's where they get a lot more specific. And they say, what that actually means is send $200 million to Pfizer for this, send $100 million to Abbott Labs for that, send another $100 million to Pfizer for the other thing. That's where they get very specific. But the public wouldn't stand for that if that were in the actual bill, so they don't put it in the bill itself. It says here, Republicans have blocked additional supplemental funds for COVID-19 response efforts, including a $10 billion installment earlier this year, arguing spending pandemic aid should be repurposed instead. The administration ended up taking the $10 billion from other pots of money. You know, you just take it from other pots of money. As we've been clear with members of Congress for months, every dollar of COVID response is either obligated, being executed, or planned for specific purposes, the official who spoke on the condition of anonymity said on a conference call. If they do not give us the funding we have asked, it will force, it will force us to make very difficult trade-offs and pull from existing planned uses to meet the needs of the American people. 
So pull from existing planned usages. You, you must be thinking to yourself, wait a second, Congress controls spending. You mean Congress said the money's for this and, and the White House decides no, it's for that? Well, what you find is the executive branch has a lot more discretion than you might think when it comes to how funds that are appropriated by Congress are actually doled out. You know, the, Congress says send this much to EPA. And a large proportion of that money, EPA just says, uh, you let them decide what they want to do with it. They've got enough people over there. We, it's not our problem. You know, you have broad line items, but then let them decide the rest. And so that is how the game actually functions. Uh, they're seeking uh, $4.5 billion, the administration is, to uh, stop the spread of monkeypox with $600 million devoted to international efforts to stop monkeypox. Ukraine would receive... $11.7 billion under the proposal, with $7.2 billion of military aid, including for replenishment of U.S. weapons and equipment stocks sent to help combat Russian aggression. You see, it's not actually going to Ukraine. What, 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 what happens is a large percentage of this money is we sent over stocks of weapons, of ammunition, of equipment that the United States kept in armories and warehouses around the country and overseas. That was sent to Ukraine, and now they have to replenish those stocks. So essentially, these are just new purchase orders to defense contractors is what they amount to, to replenish those stocks, a large proportion of it. You don't know that. The media doesn't report on these details. Even if you watch Fox News or something, they don't tell you exactly how it works. Young said about two-thirds of previous appropriated funds have been spent, with the remainder expected to run out by September. That is uh, just, just remarkable. We have rallied the world to support Ukraine as they defend their democracy. If that's what you call Ukraine's government, I, I've got news for you. And we cannot allow that to support, that we cannot allow that support to Ukraine to run dry, Young wrote in a blog post. Again, this blog post, I don't understand this concept. Separate two billion is devoted to offset domestic energy cost increases as a result of the Ukraine conflict, including funds to purchase uranium for U.S. nuclear reactors and to shore up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been decimated by Joe Biden. It's been more than decimated, uh, which the administration has been tapping to help ease gasoline prices. Yeah, well, gas is still extremely expensive around the country. Finally, the White House is calling on Congress to attach $6.5 billion in emergency disaster assistance as communities across the country continue to cope with the aftermath of floods, hurricanes, drought, and more. It's like, don't, isn't FEMA already funded? Well, they want to give FEMA uh, another $2.9 billion for their main disaster relief fund. They want to give the Department of Agriculture another $1.9 billion to cope with, uh, to provide direct payments to farmers and ranchers who have lost crops and livestock. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, that is HUD, would receive $1.4 billion in longer-term recovery funding for disasters that struck last year in Louisiana, California, and Texas. The proposal is asking lawmakers to add $500 million for low-income heating and cooling assistance as households cope with higher utility prices and $150 million to help improve the resilience of the electric grid. It's just unbelievable. I mean, another $47 billion they want to burn. Another $47 billion they want to burn here on just total pork, insane spending that, that will change nothing. The $11 billion will not change anything for Ukraine. 
The 500 million is not going to change anything on your electric bill. And it, but this is exactly what they want. The, the war in Ukraine has, has devolved into basically a, a low-intensity, long-term proxy war, which is what the United States wants. It's what the military-industrial complex wants. It's what's profitable. It is what supports the current business model of these defense contractors. They have scaled up their companies to be able to provide products and services for the global war on terror, which was spending something on the order of uh, half a billion a year if you average it all out, maybe 400 billion a year if you average it all out, on global war on terror. Other military spending as well on the main strategic items uh, like these uh, warships, these, uh, what were they, the uh, the uh, LCM warships that uh, stopped working after two years. They had to scrap them after just two years. Those littoral class uh, cruisers or LTCs, I think, those littoral class cruisers that they just had to scrap after two years because they were worthless. They didn't work. You remember that? So they have to keep this whole industry propped up, and that's how they're doing it, is with a low-intensity proxy war with Ukraine. That is the, 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 the simple uh, story behind it. Now, I want to talk about this John Podesta story. You all know about John Podesta. You remember him from the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign. John Podesta, uh, infamous connoisseur of various uh, rigatoni and hot dogs and uh, cheese pizza, Really, uh, uh, he is quite the uh, culinary enthusiast. At least that's what his emails would suggest. And he spends a great deal of money on cheese pizza every year, according to his own emails. Uh, And uh, that is something in which uh, we are not going to question uh, what that means on this program. We know that when he says he's spending $50,000 on cheese pizzas uh, that have to be shipped in from another city, that is precisely what he is doing. And I will not tolerate uh, any speculation and conspiracy theories that suggest otherwise. Not on this program. We stick to the facts here. And we know that John Podesta is a well-meaning individual. So we get into uh, what is happening here with John Podesta. Now, let me tell you the the real story here. Uh, This is a report out from Axios. It says, White House taps John Podesta to oversee clean energy spending. Now, we're going to unpack what that means here. It says President Biden is bringing longtime Democratic advisor, and he's basically been a White House advisor for the last year and a half unofficially anyway, but now he's going to have a paycheck, uh, to fill in a newly created role called Senior Advisor for Clean Energy Innovation and Implementation. Podesta will oversee implementation of the roughly $370 billion worth of clean energy and climate-related investments in the recently signed Democratic tax and climate change legislation, otherwise known as the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. Podesta has a long history on climate work and has worked at the highest levels of democratic administrations and politics. What does this mean? Let's just read the sentence. Podesta has a long history on climate work. What on earth does that mean? A long history on climate work. What is this? Now, now you on the ground, maybe in, in, in California or in Nevada or in Iowa or in Illinois or Texas or wherever around the country, might think to yourself, you know, what is this really? 
What does that mean, climate work? See, only somebody in D.C. would write that sentence and not think it just sounds absolutely bizarre. Well, what that means is that there's an entire industry here in D.C. Now, we know about the clean energy industry and, and all the scams that go on there. But there's an entire industry in Washington, D.C. built up around the government and how it interfaces with clean energy. You see, because there's never been a company that sets up and says, we are going to create solar energy, we're going to sell it onto the grid, and we're going to do so at a profit, independently of any government help. It does not exist. Now, people will say, well, the oil industry gets subsidies too. Well, they get some subsidies here and some subsidies there. But what I'm telling you is nowhere in the world, not along the equator, not in Saharan Africa, nowhere, even the sunniest places on earth, is there an operation that sets up and they produce this kind of energy, whether it's wind or solar, because that's really what we're talking about, at a profit. Whereas there's tons of people that set up, they drill oil, they sell the oil, they sell the energy, they produce the energy, and all along the way they make a profit from the people who uh, track down the oil to the people who drill for it to the people who ultimately pack it and ship it to those who then refine it and then sell it ultimately, which then it is, let's say, burned to create energy or to run a car. Run a car, create home energy, uh, whatever it happens to be, run a, a power plant or a manufacturing center. That exists, and it exists all around the world, but, there, but it doesn't work when you're using 1400s technology, i.e. windmills, or using the sun. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at a profit. And so the government comes in, and they shower these operations with cash. And there was an, an operation they opened up outside of Nevada. Harry Reid was responsible for this with a big earmark that he wrote into a bill more than a decade ago. They spent $500 million on a solar farm outside of Las Vegas. You'd think if you can run a solar energy operation anywhere in the world and not need government money, it would be outside of Las Vegas. It's pretty darn sunny there. No, the whole thing went bust. Didn't even work with the $500 million from the government. So Podesta will come in. He will oversee this spending. They point out here in the report, uh, he was chief of staff to former President Clinton, later served as top climate advisor to President Obama, and chaired Hillary Clinton's failed 2016 White House run. In 2003, he founded the Center for American Progress, a liberal think tank with close ties to Democrats. The White House also announced Friday that Gina McCarthy, Biden's top domestic climate aide, will depart mid-September and will be replaced by Ali Zaidi. That's a good Ali Zaidi, I guess. is That's a good uh, exotic name. That's the kind of name you want to get a, to get a job within a Democrat uh, administration. You want an exotic name like Manu Raju or uh, Christine Amanpour. You need a very foreign-sounding name, exotic-sounding name, preferably Central Asian, uh, something really, really out there uh, as far as, you know, an ultra-minority. I mean, you, you, that, that's what you want as far as getting hired into one of these roles. Absolutely. A creation of a central White House role overseeing the new law sig signals a heavy priority, uh, breathing life into the historically large new investments. So, let me tell you what's really going to happen here. John Podesta is going to come into the White House. He's going to have broad discretion over the spending of this $370 billion. He's going to be responsible for it. What he's going to do is he's going to install aides underneath him at multiple levels, 
and at various agencies, whether it's the Department of Energy, whether it's the EPA, Department of Agriculture, all the agencies that have money appropriated to them in this bill. These aides will be what are called White House liaisons, deputy White House liaisons. He'll install them. President has to formally sign off and appoint them, but they just bring that in a stack. And then what will happen is he will be able to dole out this money. Well, then what does that mean exactly? Well, what that means is as we speak upon the announcement of his role, people are reaching out to a company called Invariant LLC. Invariant LLC. Invariant LLC is a lobbying firm in Washington, D.C., a big lobbying firm, which just happens to be run by a woman named Heather Podesta. That, of course, is John Podesta's sister. I think that Tony Podesta also worked at the firm for a time. The brother, you recall him, he had all those uh, bizarre paintings of uh, sexualized paintings of children in his home and sculptures and things. Remember Tony Podesta? Well, Heather Podesta runs Invariant LLC. And so the way that this will work is that you know that John Podesta is in charge of handing out the uh, green energy money. So if you're some uh, very shady solar company, what you then do is you call up Invariant LLC. You say, I really need some help giving this, getting this government money. I'd like to hire you to do government relations work for me. I'd like to hire you to do lobbying work for me. You're going to pay Invariant LLC a million dollars or $500,000 or $300,000 or however much money, commensurate with how much money you're looking to get out of the government. And then what will happen is Heather will just call up her brother, John, and uh, the money will quickly be directed uh, to your company from one of those agencies. That is how this works in D.C. That's how it actually works. Now, John Podesta won't even have to stay in that role very long because he will install a structure of minions within the government so that he'll be able to leave uh, very quickly, uh, maybe after just a few months. You know, he's not going to want this job for too long, I don't imagine. Uh, he will then uh, either go work and he'll get, number one, he'll get board seats on these companies that receive the money that'll pay him, you know, not a ton of money, but maybe say 75000 a year each to show up on one Zoom call a year or four Zoom calls a year or something like that. He'll get special advisor roles, board of advisor roles. It'll be 100000 here, 75000 here. But if you had 10 of those or 100 of them, they add up. He may go then and work at Invariant with his sister. He may start his own lobbying firm uh, without needing his sister now at, at Invariant, Heather Podesta. Uh, but he will then have this group of minions in government that at any time he can call up on the phone and say, listen, I've got this client. I need them to be taken care of direct the spending to go to them. That is what lobbying is. That's what it is. It is people in D.C. accruing relationships, accruing influence for a living, doing all that it takes to do that, and then putting that influence and those relationships on offer to corporations and individuals in certain cases that have issues with the government. And that is speech. That is federally protected speech. Lobbying is protected by the First Amendment very clearly in the Constitution. It's never going anywhere. And by the way, you want the ability to lobby government because if you said lobbying is banned, well, then what, what's banned exactly? Can you never send a letter to your congressman again? I mean, it would be kind of crazy if you ultimately banned lobbying and it would just still happen under a different name. They'd just call it something else. So that's what lobbying is. That's what's going to happen here. He's not even going to need to stay in this role very long. He may stay in the role for six months or less. 
he may pick one of the underlings to replace him. Or even if someone else comes in to do that, maybe they'll get rid of the role completely. Maybe someone else will come in. It won't matter. He'll still have his network, his stay-behind network, it's called. A stay-behind network is, is an important concept to understand in the way that Washington works. He will have his stay-behind network. He will put it on offer. He and his sister will profit tremendously. So what we're going to do here on this show, and maybe some of you can remind me to, to do an update on this segment in a few months, but we'll go back and we'll check on the lobbying disclosures for Invariant LLC. And you just watch how many new uh, climate change projects, uh, green energy companies have signed up and hired them from this point forward. It's going to be off the charts. They're going to print millions of dollars from this bill from this bill that has been passed in Washington, D.C. And, and this is not the only example of Washington, D.C. Uh, working in this manner. No, it's not the only uh, thing that works in this manner. Uh, for example, there's, there's another situation like this that is happening as we speak. There's a gentleman uh, named Steve Reschetti. Steve Reschetti is a longtime lobbyist. He was picked by Biden to be on his transition team as he entered the White House and to be senior counsel to the president. He serves in that role still today. Well, you see, Steve Reschetti, it's good to have siblings, man. It's good to not be an only child, I guess, especially in Washington, D.C. I've got siblings myself. Uh, it's, it's good to have, I guess, in D.C. because, you see, Steve Reschetti, he's senior counsel to president, and he has a brother named Jeff Reschetti. And Jeff Reschetti operates a lobbying firm called Reschetti Inc. Reschetti Inc. is located just a block from the White House. It's basically right next to the Willard Hotel. Uh, you know, so you have the White House and you have the Department of Treasury, and then uh, dividing that is ultimately uh, you have, I guess, one more building. I guess it's a W in the Willard, and then they're right next door. I mean, so there you could throw a stone from from the office just about and hit the White House. They're within earshot. So if you need something from the federal government, Steve Reschetti manages a certain portfolio of issues. Uh, I think he does a lot of defense-related uh, kind of work with the president. And so what will happen is if you want that kind of thing from the White House, if you want money from the White House, if you need a government investigation to go away, what you do is you call up Jeff Reschetti at Reschetti, Inc. You pay Jeff Reschetti hundreds of thousands of dollars, a million dollars, more, depending on the situation. He calls up his brother, uh, Steve at the White House, or maybe he just, you know, yells to him. He's so close to the White House. Maybe he just hollers to him. I think he works from home, really, in reality, most of the time. And uh, they get it done for you. That is how Washington, D.C. functions. Now, the Trump administration was not a whole lot better. I mean, I will tell you, the, the only thing that made the Trump administration better in terms of having less of these kind of arrangements, I will say, is that it, it was very hard to lobby the Trump administration. I mean, lobbying, my job as a lobbyist, my day job, got much easier with the Biden administration because there wasn't the constant chaos and the constant turnover. The problem in the Trump administration is as soon as you got to know somebody that was in a role, they would be out. They'd be fired or replaced or they left. Or It was just impossible to, 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 to keep your hands on any relationship within the Trump administration. It was very hard. It was a lot more expensive. You had to do a lot more backslapping at the Trump Hotel when it was still around. It's now, of course, become a uh, a different 
uh, hotel. It's now the uh, Waldorf Astoria. It looks about the same. I, I went into it uh, not too long ago. It looks about the same, but uh, it kind of died with the pandemic is what happened to the Trump Hotel. So that's how these situations work out. Uh, that is how Washington, D.C. works. And this is analysis and, and reporting, on-the-ground reporting from K Street that you get on this show you can't get anywhere else. But let, let me just quickly, uh, before we move on to some more news and analysis I want to talk to you about, let me tell you how this show works from a, a business model standpoint here. Of course, uh, many of you have come over from Censored.TV, hosted a show on Censored.TV, which is Gavin McInnes' network called Man Up with Jacob Wool for over two years. Yeah, that was weekly episodes. We've talked about that. Weekly didn't work out so well. It's just too much news to cover in one episode a week. So you end up missing things and not talking about things you want to talk about because you don't have the time and all of that. That was 125 episodes in 125 weeks. Hardly heard of, hardly seen in the in the realm of, of, of weekly shows to never miss an episode. And I never missed an episode, even as I was you know, indicted by the Michigan AG, indicted by the Ohio AG, uh, chased down by New York, you name it. It was Mr. Reliable, and I still am. But the way this show works is it's value for value. You get value from the show. You send value to the show. And sometimes you send value in the form of news tips. Sometimes you send value uh, in the form of information. I, I, I get lots of emails uh, for these shows, lots of sourcing, and people reach out through jacobwold.org. It's jacobwold.org slash contact, all of that. But you can uh, support this show. You can support uh, our program uh, yourself. Uh, you can use Cash App. You can go to Real Jacob Wool on Cash App, Real Jacob Wool. Make sure you spell it correctly. There's probably fake accounts that have already cropped up. Real Jacob Wool on Cash App. You can send value to the show. Keep us going. Uh, you know, it's not cheap to do these kind of programs. It, it isn't easy. A uh, lot of equipment, a lot of time. These are very well-researched episodes. But you send value back to the show. You get value from the show. You send value back. Uh, it is the, the way of doing this. That way, I am not slave to advertisers. I don't have to sit here and tell you uh, to go buy products that I don't like. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I remember it was just embarrassing for a while with Ben Shapiro. This guy would tell you to buy a different mattress every week, depending on which mattress was sponsoring that week. There's all these, you know, online mattress companies. He's like, Casper mattress is the only mattress I'll ever sleep on. And then the next week it's like, ghost mattress is the only mattress I'll ever sleep on. It's like, dude, are you really changing your mattress out every week? Did you ever sleep on the mattress? It, it's embarrassing. And, and then you become slave to the advertisers because they try to steer the content. They say, oh, don't talk about that. Don't talk about this. Don't talk about that issue. And that's the problem. So it's value for value, and you can send value to the show. You just go to Cash App, Real Jacob Wool. Uh, PayPal also, jacob at jacobwool.org on PayPal, jacob at jacobwool.org. Uh, do me a favor. Don't send any uh, exciting notes through PayPal along with your money because those will get flagged. Just go to jacob at jacobwool.org, PayPal, Real Jacob Wool on Cash App. Uh, you can support the broadcast. It's deeply appreciated. Then what you can do is if you want me to read a note associated with your uh, donation to the show associated with your support for the show. You just send it in, just, you know, reference the donation and, uh, and I'll read it on the show here. So I imagine starting Thursday next week, we're going to have a few notes to read. Uh, you know, I'm not going to read war and peace on the show. If you write, you know, war and peace, if you write 72 pages about your aunt's, uh, bunions, I'm not going to read that on the show, at least uh, not unless you send a lot of money, but I, I have to keep this as a, as a valuable broadcast. Now, like I said, certain topics, 
that if we were advertiser dependent, we could not do on this show. We just couldn't do it. They wouldn't be allowed. And I, I want to go back. One of the things I like to do on the show occasionally is, is go way back in history. Show report. And, and sometimes uh, the report from back in history will be a technology report. It'll be, you know, Bill Gates saying the Internet's never going anywhere. Or it'll be uh, you know, something that says, wow, have, how things have changed since the past. But sometimes you look back at an old report. And we do this on this, on this broadcast. And I've done it back on, on the old show. And you say, wow, things, uh, some things change and some things stay the same. Some things change and some things stay the same. Well, uh, I want to go over this report with you here. I think you're going to find this fascinating. This is a CBS News report. For the copyright bots out there, this is uh, covered under the Fair Use Act of 1972. Uh, it is not copyrighted material. I don't need permission to use it, uh, FYI. So I just want to show you this report. I think you're going to find this uh, quite interesting. Even if you can't watch it, uh, even those listening on audio, you're going to be able to hear what's, uh, what is really uh, going on in this clip. Here we go. It was the most widespread, most destructive racial violence in American history. White people driving through the riot area were considered fair game, whether young or old, men or women. Their cars were battered, the drivers stoned, kicked and beaten, and the cars were burned. The mobs might groan and curse in disappointment when a white got away, and then cheer like a football crowd when a car went up in flames. The burning and looting, the shooting and beating went on for nearly a week. It began as many race riots have begun with the arrest of a Negro by white officers. Right here at this corner. In this case, two young Negroes were stopped by California Highway Patrolmen and charged with drunk driving. There was a scuffle and a crowd gathered. The mother of the two, their brothers, joined in. And she and another woman the crowd thought was pregnant were pushed and shoved. Over and over, Negroes repeat the charge of police brutality. One who had pressed a number of brutality complaints and one of the most successful attorneys in Los Angeles is a Negro, Leo Branton. We asked him about the police claim that brutality charges are fully and fairly investigated. Well, in theory, there are avenues of complaint open. But there are no meaningful avenues uh, uh, to redress the grievances of these people. I've tried them all, and I can say to you that there is no question but that under the present machinery as it exists and as, as it is being operated today, a complaint of police brutality by any Negro citizen goes almost completely unheeded. The first thorough study of Negroes and how they live in this country was completed only a few months ago. Our government, which conducts detailed surveys of everything from sugar beets in Colorado to social habits in Cambodia, had never before taken a close look at the 21 million Negroes of America. Daniel Moynihan, until this summer, Assistant Secretary of Labor, was in charge of the study and was staggered by it. Moynihan says the Negro family structure is collapsing, and we asked him the reasons. We have had 35 years of disastrous unemployment and uh, for the Negro male. He has never gotten over the depression. He had four fair years, fair to middling years in the Second World War and maybe a good year in the Korean War, and that's it. 
Although he denied to the police any part in the looting and rioting, he took me on a tour of some of the places he said he helped to burn, as casual as a stroll in the park. I threw the firebomb right in the front window, right in the front window. A friend of mine went in the store towards the back and threw a firebomb in the back, and the place went up in flames. But it was pretty well uh, emptied by the looters and so forth. There isn't much left, is there? There is. A, there is a burned-up shirt and so forth that could have been gotten, could have been used. But most things were taken out before you burned. As much as we could possibly give. Then we would decide to burn, and the cry in the streets was, burn, baby, burn. Why would you burn out this kind of place? We decided to burn this store because we felt that this man hadn't been doing nothing but gaming on us anyway. So serious and explosive is the situation, says the commission, that unless it is checked, the August riots may be only a curtain raiser to what could blow up one day in the future. You see this report, and there's so much that could be said, and perhaps so much that doesn't need to be said. Uh, it, it speaks for itself at a scale that, that I don't even think I'm able to put into words. But one takeaway I have is, what kind of country would we have today? What kind of country would we have today if, if the media, if the news media reported, not everything, but if they just reported most news, quote-unquote news, the way that you see this report done on CBS News here in 1964? What kind of country would we have if the George Floyd situation were approached by today's news media the way that the Watts riots were processed and reported on by the media in 1964? Because when I look at this CBS News report, you know, there are obviously uh, cultural mores, terms that are used and aren't so used today that obviously make it a throwback, even the way in which people are speaking, all of them, and including the the news reporter, the broadcaster there. Uh, it was just a different way of speaking back then, a, a sort of uh, a very different uh, stilted kind of speak that was that was very different, and, and, and it just doesn't really exist anymore. But what if the news media today reported things like this? This down the middle, this close to the truth of the situation as it exists. Can you even imagine what a better state of affairs we would have in this country. But the media has no intention of doing that. They are the enemy of the people. That is one true thing that Trump said. They are the enemy of the people. They are the enemy of the well-being of this country, certainly. It's really striking to see, but it's one of those throwback reports that I look at and I say, you know what? The more things change, the more they stay the same. Every generation thinks, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, this isn't uh, new. You see, we had the uh, Rodney King riots. And then, you know, the older generation say, well, the Rodney King riots aren't new. We had the, I mean, they had countless riots, the, the Watts riots, the Detroit riots, the riots that burned down much of Washington, D.C. I think that was, was 68. When MLK was assassinated, many of the country's cities burned to the ground, just burned to the ground. Uh, uh, unbelievable. And if you ask people that were old enough, unfortunately, many of them aren't, are, are no longer with us, 
they'd tell you about other riots that happened. And, and, and when you look at the news media, you, you have to ask yourself one question. If the news is fake, what does that make history? If the news is fake, how dependable is history? You, you, you have to be damn skeptical of a lot of history you read when you consider how fake the news is. And, and you consider the fact that until very recently in human history, there were no cameras, there were no video cameras, certainly. There was no CCTV footage. There was no uh, uh, sound recorders even in, in any wide distribution. And so you just relied on people's accounts of things and what people said that they saw. My God, how, how things have, have gone downhill uh, in, in regards to the media in that amount of time. But uh, there was this article out of uh, Dennis Prager. You know, you know Dennis Prager from PragerU, uh, presumably. And this article uh, came out. It is, it is entitled, uh, Women Are Disproportionately Hurting Our Country. This is from Dennis Prager, uh, published in, I think, The Daily Signal. I think this is a, a Heritage Foundation uh, publication. Now, they don't endorse the columns that they publish. They say that very clearly at the bottom. So uh, don't take this to mean too much about the Heritage Foundation. But I want to read you this report, and, and I don't have the reaction to this report that you might think I have. My take is, is, is one that is very different from Dennis Prager's take. Uh, the article, again, here is from Dennis Prager. It is entitled, Women Are Disproportionately Hurting Our Country. The column said, When I was in college, I read a book by George Gilder, one of the wisest thinkers of the last half century, titled Naked Nomads, which had deep impact on me. It was about single men and all the pathologies associated with them. For example, Gilder drove home the point that the biggest factor concerning violent crime was that it is overwhelmingly committed by single men. While there was no danger... I would say no chance that I would commit a violent crime, though at the time I was single. This fact, along with others in the book, made me a lifelong advocate of marriage. That's what Dennis Prager writes here. I can think of some other factors that seem to correlate with violent crime, too, by the way, that are not whether or not one is single. But that's one factor, certainly. That's one uh, uh, correlative uh, factor, no question about that. I also came to realize that raising good men was the most important thing society could do. If it doesn't, the male propensity to physical danger or to physical aggression and predatory sexual behavior will wreak havoc. Therefore, raising boys to control their natures is fundamental to society avoiding chaos. Over the course of a lifetime, however, I have come to realize that while society was right about males, it was wrong about females, whether spoken or unspoken. Most people thought that girls just didn't need to be raised to control their natures nearly as much as boys did, but they do. See, and, and then here's where Dennis Prager goes totally off the rails, I would say. He goes completely off the rails. He says, I have, uh, he says, I have come to realize that while society was right about males, it was wrong about females, whether spoken or unspoken. Most people thought girls just didn't need to be raised to control their natures. Who thought that? The baby boomers thought that. See, Dennis Prager just says society thought, oh, you know, girls, they just kind of raise themselves and their natures are all good. There's nothing wrong with female nature. Really? I mean, if, if that's the case, if that's the case, then how come the entire world, anywhere that anyone can account for, didn't have female suffrage until the 20th century? 
if it is the case that society had just thought that female nature is perfect, it's wonderful, and you don't need to course correct it whatsoever, then why did we only get female suffrage recently? You see, it isn't something that society has thought forever, as Dennis Prager just assumes here. It is something that the baby boomers and the silent generation, and those who came just before them, the turn of the century, it's something that they originated. It is not an idea that has just been around as long as the sun has risen and the grass is green and the sky is blue. It is not. He assumes that it is. It's a new phenomenon. Uh, he writes here, It's true that females are not inclined to violence or predatory sexual behavior as men are. But this hardly, hardly means that girls and women don't have to learn to control their natures. On the contrary, as I've been telling parents for many years now, they need to teach their daughters to control their natures just as much as they teach their sons to do so. Specifically, girls have to learn to control their emotions. Just as the male sexual drive and violent impulses can overwhelm their conscience and their ability to act rationally, emotions can do the same thing in girls and women, overwhelm their conscience and their ability to act rationally. However, it should be obvious that at least two generations of parents, especially among the well-educated, did not teach many of their daughters to control their emotions and think rationally. Okay, so he's starting to maybe say that it's just two generations that, that at least kind of haven't done that. But he doesn't exactly say that they're the ones who threw out the historical way of doing things, and, and that is the case, of course. We all know that. The result is that women are disproportionately active in doing damage to our society. This is what Dennis Prager says. This is not, these are not my words. And, and I disagree, and I'm going to tell you why in a second. The most obvious example is education. American schools teach less and indoctrinate more than ever. Big city, public, and most private schools are damaging young Americans to an extent and in ways no one imagined just a few years ago. Young children are prematurely sexualized. They are, for example, exposed to drag queen story hour in class and local libraries from the age of five. The feature of a man dressed as a woman reading and dancing for them. It's worse than that. Usually it's a registered sex offender doing it, number one. Usually they're wearing devil horns. Usually their eyes are blown out red. Usually they are in some way worshiping Satan, and they have Satanist tattoos all over their body, pentagrams and the like. It's not merely men dressed as women. Uh, it is not. It is well beyond that when you see these drag queen story hours. FYI. He just puts it very kindly. And who is facilitating all of this? In virtually every case, a woman. 92% of kindergarten teachers are women. 75% of all teachers are women. 85% of all librarians are women. And he goes on and on. This, the rest of this article is a, is a, is a laundry list. The 1619 Project is a woman, he says here. Uh, LAUSD is a, is a woman. It's women. Uh, teachers' unions are, are women, and they're talking about COVID lockdowns. It's women's fault. He says uh, women physicians and healthcare workers are at the vanguard of ruining young people's hospitals that push giving young people puberty-blocking hormones and opposite gender hormones. Uh, so it's a laundry list. He goes on here about how women are disproportionately hurting society. It's all on women's shoulders. That is uh, basically what Dennis Prager is saying here. And first of all, I'm sure many of you are, are, are watching this. And he says women are disproportionately hurting society. And I know many of you out there are saying, Okay, this is a guy who has been in political talk radio, news analysis, active in politics for, what, 40 years or more? Dennis Prager, he's going to be approaching 80. I mean, he's, he's, an, he's an old guy. And all of this is just occurring to him now? All of this is just occurring to him 
now? I mean, that, that's what I know many of you are thinking. Uh, but when you look at Dennis Prager and you see this article, you know, and, and like I said, you can read the article, uh, 74, it just becomes a, a, a laundry list is what the article devolves into. Teachers are women, well, the doctors are women, and the, the vax people are women, and the, the, the trannies that are doing the story time are women. That's what, that's what Dennis Prager says. And so therefore he says, we have to raise women differently. I mean, that's what his, his conclusion is. But it doesn't address exactly, well, okay, so you're going to raise women differently, are you? So you're not going to send them to any school because you just said the schools are run by women. What about a library? What about a doctor's office? So it, it doesn't exactly prescribe for how you fix this. But when I read uh, Dennis Prager saying, all of this, uh, that society is disproportionately harmed by women, and they're the doctors, and they're this, and they're that. Here's what it sounds like to me. It, it, is, it is this remark by Dennis Prager, this sentiment by Dennis Prager, to me, is very, very reminiscent of the sentiment you hear a lot of times from boomers, where they say that and you hear from Gen Xers, too. They say that the, the, the millennials are soft, the millennials are lazy, the Zoomers are lazy, the Zoomers are soft, the Zoomers don't like to work, the millennials are, are babies, they live in their basement, they're all bad. You hear this, and you say, okay, let's say all that's true for the sake of argument. Then your next question should be, okay, and who raised the millennials? Who raised the Zoomers? That should be question number two, because you see, if, if, if the, the millennials and the Zoomers are so bad, then their parents must have been a, a real bunch of screw-ups. I mean, they really must have been bad. Oh, wait, who were their parents? Oh, that's right. They were the Boomers and the Gen Xers who are saying how bad they are. And, and, and much in the same way as, okay, great, you think, oh my gosh, these uh, millennials and these Zoomers are awfully soft. And that means that you're the one who screwed up. You raised them poorly on average. Plenty of really smart ones too. Really hard-charging millennials and Zoomers, like the people who watch this show. They are not in this group of noodle boys that exist. I think the same has to be said about men and women. Men are, at the end of the day, always at the tip of the spear of society whether we like it or not. Society will cease to run as we know it without men. Everyone knows it. The, the power line, if you had to wait for a perfectly diverse male and female power crew to show up by law to fix a power line, you'd be waiting for three years to fix power lines in this country. If you had to, to wait for uh, an all-female crew to fix the sewer, you'd be waiting for a very long time. And on down the line, whether you're talking about uh, putting up a skyscraper, uh, building homes, there are a whole list of things. If you're talking about dealing in the physical world, that is where men shine. Dealing with uh, something like this, a stud finder that's sitting on my desk. If you're, if you're working in the world of stud finders, if you're working in the world of power drills, a bandsaws. That is the male domain. And without that, 
the Human Resources Department doesn't have a roof over its head. Without that, you might have teachers, but you don't have a school with running power. Without that, uh, you can have all the drag queen story hours you want, but you're not going to have a library that's got air conditioning. You see? And so men have to take the responsibility here. Just in the same way as the boomers have got to allow the consequences and the blame of the failures, or so do they say, of millennials. Maybe they're just late bloomers, and that's what it seems like more and more. The millennials now are buying homes. They're moving on through life. doesn't help that the homes cost five times as much adjusted for inflation as when their boomer parents and grandparents bought them. Adjusted for inflation, I might add, and adjusted for increases in income. They're five times more expensive. doesn't help. So maybe it took them a little bit longer. Maybe they stayed home a little bit longer. They seem to be making it along. Somebody writes here in the chat, uh, how old are you? I'm 24 years old. So I, some people would consider me a, a millennial. Some would consider me a Zoomer, depending on which number you look at. Some say 97 is Zoomer. Some say it's 2000. It, it just depends where you look. It's borderline. Uh, chat here, here on uh, YouTube Live for those of you listening on podcast. Just as the, the, the blame for that rests on the shoulders of the people who raised those uh, men and women in those generations, so too does the blame for women being, as Dennis Prager says, pernicious uh, damagers of society. He says that a disproportionate damagers of society. Men are to blame. Men are responsible. Yes, that's right. Men are responsible. I mean, you think about this. Men handle the physical world. They also handle the, the world of force. I mean, at the end of the day, if any kind of force is ever going to be introduced to the equation, it's, it's going to be delivered by a man for the most part. Plenty of exceptions. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions. You don't have to go in the comments and list every exception. Leave some comments, though, if you're stopping by on YouTube. Uh, leave us a five-star review if you're listening on a podcast app. Make sure to subscribe, all of that stuff. Hit the bell, all that nonsense. But men control force. You see, you might say, well, you know, women, uh, uh, they go to family court. And you say, okay, well, what happens in family court? Well, in family court, they have a judge. Uh, the judge a woman? Well, sometimes, okay, this judge is a woman. Well, then wh what's going to happen if, you know, they'll say the judge says you have to pay child support? Okay. Well, what happens if you don't pay child support? Well, the judge will issue an order. Okay, an order. That's a piece of paper. But eventually, the, the only way that that whole system has any teeth are when the men show up to backstop it with, with force, to backstop it with the threat of violence. You know, women might vote to import 80,000 refugees to this country into one particular town in Texas. How many of the pilots flying them in are women? How many of the National Guardsmen helping them off the plane are women? Some, presumably. But I guarantee you the vast majority are men. And, and what I will tell you also, and I think very uh, importantly, is that when you have a society in which men have become so feminine— Men have become so weak. Men have become so soft. What naturally happens is that women become more masculine. They take on the masculine role. It's why you see the uh, black inner city single mother 
who is so aggressive in the McDonald's when they get her order wrong. I mean, it's like testosterone, roid rage times 10. It is like, you know, trembolone, roid rage times 10. Why is that? There's no male influence. If there is a male influence, it's not a very masculine one. I mean, it may have phony masculine uh, sort of veneers around it. It may have, uh, you know, tattoos and gold teeth and these kind of phony masculine signalers, but it doesn't have uh, any, any real substance. And so in the absence of that real masculine influence, women uh, act out in, in a way that you might describe in the uh, at least horological sense as, as being, uh, or heuristical sense, as, as, as being uh, masculine. And when that happens, it's a role which is so unnatural which is so far from the, the, the fringes, the edges of the female mind, of the, of the female spirit. And I, and I do mean the spirit here, metaphysically and, and otherwise, that it doesn't work out so well. This is why uh, the children of single mothers do so poorly. I'm not bashing the single mothers. I'm saying it's really tough. It is very tough for her to be the mother and the father. It is very unnatural. Some manage to pull it off. Most do not. And now you are seeing the same uh, sort of phenomenon be spread throughout society where you say, well, men are just going to act like women or, or whatever you call that. And women are going to naturally edge towards being like men. And the result is chaos. That is what you see. And so if you want women to shape up, you're going to need men to shape up. It starts with the men. It starts with the men. You can't even talk to the women about shaping up because you're going to receive uh, such a uh, utterly aggressive, uh, big, masculine-like response from them that you won't even be able to break through. It's not even worth bothering. There'll be no cooperation. There'll be no audience for that. So men have got to take the mantle. It is our cross to bear to embrace the masculine ideal. And out of that will come improved outcomes for us, the men, will come improved outcomes for women. I mean, much better outcomes for women. Much better outcomes for women. And uh, a lot of these societal issues that you see, the society out at large, will bear a lot of the benefits of this. I mean, people say, well, you know, and you joke around, you say, well, uh, the real problem is women voting. Okay, what do you propose to do about that? Uh, repeal the 19th. Okay, good luck with that. A quarter of Congress is women. Um, okay, well, what else do you propose? They don't have any more ideas. Okay, well... Maybe if we embrace the masculine ideal as men, not as women, not as little girls getting testosterone shots, the women will fall into place. Their role is not to lead the charge. Their role is not to be at the tip of the spear of the improvement of society. It doesn't work that way. But they will be willing and abiding allies in the repairment of, of the country and the repairment of the world if the masculine ideal is embraced religiously and with little exception 
by the male population. That is my take, and I think I think Dennis Prager is is dead wrong, and it's a harder take to deliver because it has an even smaller audience than his take, which is his perspective is that women are the problem. Here's a laundry list of things. Okay, well, there are a certain group of men who will cheerlead for that. Women won't like it for the most part. Men will cheerlead it, some group of men. Now you have to be the guy, me, who comes in and says, uh, yeah, you're right. All those statistics you said about the teachers, and everything, that's all correct. But uh, before you cheerlead men, you have to do something about it. Then you have an even smaller group who embraces that message. And by the way, it's a lot of work. You know, as Jordan Peterson will say, you have to clean your room. I mean, how much of a contingent is there for that? How much of an audience, how much of a... Of a uh, constituency is there for that. It's a much smaller one. But I want to move on here. I go to this uh, report here. This is uh, really interesting. A new ATF document reveals gun owners who own pistol braces could be forced to register them. You do know presumably what these pistol braces are. Uh, Basically, they are a brace that goes on the wrist. um, And uh, what it enables you to do is uh, fire an AR-15 pistol uh, strapped to your wrist. It also happens to be the case that besides helping uh, weak or disabled people uh, fire pistols, the other thing that it does is it enables uh, you to take what would otherwise be, say, a registered short-barreled rifle, which comes with a $200 tax stamp, which you have to fill out paperwork to cross state lines with and all of the rest and isn't allowed in certain states, and then Uh, What it enables you to do is basically take that pistol brace, which I know very few people have ever done, and you can uh, put it up to your shoulder, uh, just like a stock, just like a stock, and you can fire it that way. Uh, That is basically, and for those of you listening, this may be hard to visualize. Um, You can you can look up what a pistol brace is if you like, and that's basically the the essence of what it does. I'm I'm pulling up an image here. for the uh, audience who is who is watching uh, who is watching on video, you see this is an example here of a pistol brace. Um, it this one folds over. So the point is, you can you can strap it to your wrist, uh, or you can uh, alternatively, you know, kind of put it up to your shoulder like a stock. And there's debate over whether that is uh, legal or not, and all of that. Okay, so that's what a pistol brace is. But what happened is that. A document was leaked. It wasn't really leaked. It was accidentally posted online, which was a form that seemed to suggest the ATF is rolling out an amnesty period in which they're going to be asking people to uh, send in. They're going to say no $200 tax stamp, but now you have to register these things as short-barreled rifles or kind of modified uh, short-barreled rifles in essence. And what you will have to do then is you will have to send in a picture of the firearm all of the information about the firearm to the ATF, along with an FBI spec fingerprint card, takes $20 to $40 to get one of those done, have a separate background check done. It's now registered directly with the ATF. You also have to send in passport photos of yourself to the ATF. So you're declaring this to the ATF, which is one of the most out-of-control federal agencies of all. They will waive the tax stamp, the $200 tax stamp, uh, where you have to pay them $200 for a period of time, I guess. And uh, they want you to ship off these pictures and everything to the ATF and have uh, the ATF 
know about all of these. There are millions of them that have been purchased by Americans. This amnesty would presumably run out, and then uh, everyone who has not sent in the photos would become uh, felons, I guess. And this is something in which the ATF is just announcing this. There was no law passed by Congress that indicates that this should be the case, none at all. And, and, and I don't know that the ATF can do this. The Supreme Court seemed to be pretty clear in a ruling earlier this year against the EPA that it is not the role of these agencies to uh, make law. That is not what they do. And this idea of federal agency rulemaking has run completely out of control. They are doing it yet again. You will remember that, of course, Trump asked them to ban bump stocks. They did through executive fiat. They do this a lot. So uh, this is something to keep your eye on here. Uh, not a lot more information out about this as of now. It's said to come maybe after the election, November, uh, something like that. They don't want to mobilize Republican voters who vote on guns and, and, and put it out there beforehand, but it did slip onto the ATF's website, indexed as a PDF or something. It has made it out there. I just thought I'd provide you that update. Uh, before we wrap up the show here I'm, and, and send in, if you have super chats on YouTube, I think you can send them in now. Uh, I want to play this report for you here. Uh, this is a just a little bit of a throwback. We're not looking back um, uh, 60 years now. We're just looking back a much shorter time. Uh, check out this uh, video here. And if you're listening, it's again, equally, you'll get the idea by listening. <laughs> You heard both. Police had to push back the protesters so firefighters could get to the flames. Small fires had appeared all day. This upped the temperature, which of course was the point. One demonstrator threw a flashbang grenade back at police. It exploded in an officer's face. Plenty of tear gas. Six officers reportedly injured. They will destroy your limo. You need to leave now. AK-47, put the cops in piggy heaven. All of this riot footage from the Donald Trump inauguration in uh, 2017, January 2017. So you see these freaks out of control, these rioters. And, and the reason this came to mind for me, this happened, of course, at Trump's inauguration. Unbelievable riots. Those of you uh, watching at home, you can you can see them play out. Uh, is is that last week a former NYPD officer who allegedly tried to swing part of a flagpole at a, at a Capitol Police officer, that was what they said happened, and apparently there's video of it. Um, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to the longest sentence yet for a January 6th protester, 10 years in prison. 10 years in prison, I think that's the maximum possible charge, or the maximum possible sentence, rather. Uh, that is what happened just last week, and we look back at those riots that took place, and uh, what ultimately came of that? Well, not much. Uh, you can see here, government drops all charges against inauguration protesters. This is, bear in mind, 
the Trump Department of Justice. They had wild protests, cars burned, places looted, places destroyed, people injured, uh, cops assaulted, many arrests. And the Department of Justice, because remember, D.C. has all federal. It's all federal. There's no uh, district attorney in the, in the District of Columbia. They just recently had an AG. They only have civil authority, though. They got their own attorney general, but it's just civil. Uh, so it's all DOJ jurisdiction. They dropped all the charges. And by the way, this wasn't the only time that this happened by the Department of Justice in D.C. during the Trump administration. You recall the, the riots that took place at, at the White House? Yeah, all of those charges were dropped too. Brickstone at Secret Service agents in 2020, you name it, the, the riots that would happen all across D.C. I was there for many of them. All the ones that happened in July and onwards, I was there pretty much reporting on the ground. You can, if you can find them, scroll back all the way in my Telegram channel and see what was going on. It was nuts. And there were many, many arrests of Antifa and BLM. And in almost every case, uh, almost every case that I'm aware of, uh, the people be arrested, they're brought in, put right out the next morning or put right out after the weekend on Monday morning, no charges, charges dropped, you name it. Uh, it was unbelievable that happened during the Trump administration. Meanwhile, a uh, Trump guy swings a flagpole or something and uh, is sentenced to 10 years. And it just shows you the, the two-tier justice system. If you are a Democrat, you can get away with uh, just about anything. Uh, somebody says here, no city laws. Well, th no, there are city laws in D.C. insofar as you know, they have a D.C. parking authority and stuff like that. They have the D.C. Metro PD, which makes arrests. But ultimately, it is all um, within the scope of, of federal jurisdiction. So they have laws, but it's a federal district that is administrated by the Department of Justice as opposed to a separate uh, DA's office. And that was the one rule that Nixon set up for them. He said, you can have a mayor's office, but, you know, no DA's office, because obviously in D.C. you have a DA's office they're just going to make up charges against Republicans left and right and just target them and just, you know, pick them off one at a time. Uh, and so they, they said for obvious reasons they couldn't have that. So in D.C., you know, if you it's not just if you're on the National Mall, Park Police Rescue, it's federal, just about anywhere in D.C., um, anywhere in D.C. formally, D.C. Metro PD uh, make the arrest or Park Police or whoever else is, is on the scene there. And then it is up to the Department of Justice, it's up to the U.S. attorney locally uh, to file the charges in uh, the uh, district court, uh, uh, in the district court of the District of Columbia. That's how that ends up working out. And so these U.S. attorneys at the federal level all throughout 2020 dropped the charges over and over again. You see this in 2017, massive rights, they dropped the charges. There are just thousands of examples, literally thousands of examples. It's, it's out of control, totally out of control. Uh, it, is, it is really uh, wild here. But you guys, uh, this is the last segment of the day. Thanks for watching. It's been wonderful to have you here on The Jacob Wool Show. Remember, we're powered by you. It's value for value. Go to Cash App at Real Jacob Wool, PayPal Jacob at jacobwool.org. Uh, you can send a note along with it. Uh, you just go to the email page. You can send it to that email, jacob at jacobwool.org, or go through the contact page, jacobwool.org slash contact. Make sure to subscribe here on YouTube. Subscribe on your podcast app. Give us five stars on the podcast apps. We're trying to move this podcast up in the rankings. Get this out there to a larger audience. I really do think there are a lot of commentary shows out there. I believe that this one is uniquely positioned to deliver the news from a perspective that you can't get anywhere else. I do original reporting here in D.C. I'm not based in Los Angeles. I'm not based in Nashville or in Miami or wherever the hot place is now for right-wing media. Uh, I'm right here in D.C. I'm on the ground. I am in the meetings. I hear the uh, discussions that take place. I'm involved with it. And my day job is I'm a registered lobbyist. So that's... Um, 
I have a lot of perspective on legislation and everything else that I think is, is valuable. And uh, we did it for two plus years at censored.tv. It's here now. It's the Jacob Wool Show. Share the links. Get it out there. Subscribe. Guys, thanks for joining me. We will be back Thursday at 2 p.m. I'll see you then.